Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The Bowery Boys, episode 131, The Invention of the New York Apartment. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Good afternoon, or evening, or morning, whenever you're listening to this. This is Greg Young with another podcast on New York City history. Unfortunately, Tom is not here this week. He was called away kind of unexpectedly, so it'll just be me for this show. I know it's been a little hectic for one or the other of us for the past few months, so I thank you all for your patience and for continuing to listen to us. Now, instead of complicating myself here with some grandiose topic or major landmark, I thought I'd go back to basics to the fundamental question of how New Yorkers lived back in the day, or where they laid their head every night, and throw a spotlight upon a strange new form of living that appeared in the United States in the late 1860s, the apartment building. Today, obviously, most people in New York live in apartments, and I suspect most of you listening to this show right now, wherever you're at, whatever city you're in, you live in an apartment now, or have at some point in your life. We define an apartment today differently than they would have done in the mid-19th century, Now, two architects, two guys that you have heard us talk about many times on this podcast before, were instrumental in the construction of New York's first apartment buildings. The man who funded this very first building was a true eccentric connected to a multiple of New York's most famous families. But the best part of the story will be the tenants themselves, the few, the proud, and the socially brave who first lived here. The strangest gaggle of artists, body ladies, and war widows to perhaps ever grace a respectable walk up in New York. So I cordially invite you for tea into my gracious drawing rooms at 142 East 18th Street, a.k.a. the Stuyvesant Apartments. So let's play pretend here, everybody. You're a New Yorker. You're a New Yorker and you live in the 1850s, let's say. So where were you living? Where would your home be if you were this person? The answer depends on who you are and how much money you have. That's probably no surprise. Back in the day, people used to buy up plots of land and just build proper houses here with windows on all sides and, you know, a front yard and everything. 
But Manhattan didn't have enough room for that anymore by this time. Real estate was too valuable. And with the commissioner's plan of 1811, the city is cut up into grids of city blocks. And those blocks become lucrative lots for development. Now, the richest of the rich, or the 1%, if you want to, are still building these fine mansions, of course, but they're just further up on the island and along Fifth Avenue. But the most fashionable way to live in New York now is the row house, the townhouse, or their sand-covered cousin, the brownstone, meant as single-family homes that stood about three to five stories tall. These types of homes would be stacked against each other on the street like books on a shelf. In the early days, the standard length of a row house along the street would be about 25 feet. Throughout the years, though, developers would make these row houses narrower and narrower, you know, so they could build more and more of them on a block and make more money. There really was no limit to this absurdity. In 1873, a developer actually built a home at 75 Bedford Street. It was three stories high and 10 feet long, or basically the length of two Olsen twins if you laid them head to head. Believe it or not, this home is still standing. If you'd like to go and marvel at its waistline, that's 75 Bedford Street. Now, by the 1850s, some of these row houses would be quietly divided in half, with one family on the first two floors and another family on the upper floors. Now, if you had money and but didn't want to bother with all of that, you could also live in a hotel. By this time, that was also a very acceptable, if costly, way to live. It catered to rich single men, of course, because hotels were always in the most bustling areas of town, often up and down Broadway. Less wealthy gentlemen had another option, the boarding house, which was like a hotel, a bit more transient in nature. And of course, there were widely different options available, especially if, for instance, you chose a boarding house along the waterfront, like maybe down in Corlaire's Hook, next to a nice grog house or a brothel or something. Boarding houses were often governed by widowed ladies who employed single women as maids who sometimes lived in those buildings as well. But none of these types could accommodate the literally thousands of Newport immigrants that began flowing into the city. So another now infamous form of housing evolved in the 1830s, the tenement building. These were in some respect like a row house and like row houses would be uniformly crammed together upon a city block. But these were expressly built to house multiple families in smaller rooms with fewer amenities, crammed together in really poor neighborhoods. By the 1860s, half a million New Yorkers lived in tenements, and these buildings were associated with the most filthy, most disreputable of neighborhoods, at least if you were in the Upper Cross, that is. Now, these places, the mansions, the row houses, the hotel, the boarding house, and the tenement were your options in the 1850s. And they were pretty much divided by class, rich and poor. But by this time, there was an emerging new financial class of professionals, businessmen, and artisans. People sealed off from the upper crust, those not on the invitee list of Ms. Astor, let's say, but certainly not poor. Namely, this is the birth of the New York middle class, or people who made $2,500 to $3,000 a year, according to one newspaper I found from the 1850s. A lavish hotel life with the purchase of a spacious townhouse was just out of the question. But the lifestyle of a boarding house and the tenement, well, they were unsuitable as well. So a new manner of living actually had to be constructed for this group of people. The solution lay across the Atlantic Ocean. A great many of America's educated class left to study in France in the 1840s and 50s. 
at the École des Beaux-Arts, Europe's most prestigious academy for architecture and the arts. We've mentioned the school many, many times on the show. Among the great monuments of Paris, these budding artists and architects would have stumbled into a few foreign-looking dwellings, later coined the French Flat, buildings of various sizes that include several living units within it, but of a larger size than of anything found in the New York slums. These Parisian apartments had well-decorated parlors, private kitchens, and bathroom facilities, all of this hallmarks of wealth, but they shared large communal courtyards. People saw each other coming and going during the day in the transit of their daily affairs. Now, back in America, some thought these French flats sounded scandalous, full of blousy, licentious women, French women, and very unbefitting of a proper family home. But some respected architects rather liked this idea and tried to sell New Yorkers on the idea of this so-called flat. Our old friend Calvert Vox, the co-designer of Central and Prospect Parks with Frederick Law Olmsted, Calvert was dazzled by this notion and in 1857 presented to the American Institute of Architects a grand design for what he termed the Parisian building, a sumptuously designed structure with staircases flooded with natural light and eight tastefully designed apartments that could be let for a steal, a mere $400 a year. Another proponent of this new housing idea, and coincidentally a student of the Beaux-Arts, was Richard Morris Hunt, who happened to be in the room during Vox's speech. In fact, he was the secretary of the AIA at the time. Hunt would become America's preeminent mansion builder later on, not to mention the designer of the pedestal for the Statue of Liberty. But in the 1860s, he too became fascinated by this tasteful communal living. And as the architect du jour, he had connections to wealthy New Yorkers to fund this kind of an experiment. And so here now in the story enters a man with the bluest blood in all of New York, a man named Stuyvesant Rutherford. All the fault lines of old money flowed through him. He had relatives from the Astor family, the Pierpont family. Through his mother, he traced his lineage all the way back to New Amsterdam Director General Peter Stuyvesant. Through his father, a Rutherford, he was also connected to the Morris family of Governor Morris fame. He was born Stuyvesant Rutherford. When he was a child, however... His great-uncle Petrus Stuyvesant, the great-great-grandson of the original Petrus Stuyvesant, well, he passed away, and he left all of his money in a will to the young man with one kind of alarming stipulation, that the boy flip his name in order to keep the fortune in the Stuyvesant name. So from that point on, young Stuyvesant Rutherford became Rutherford Stuyvesant. So what was Rutherford Stuyvesant to do with all that money and that valuable real estate holdings that he had just earned? Well, when Stuyvesant was 29 years old, he had become close friends with the architect, Richard Morris Hunt. Stuyvesant wanted to develop property on land that was owned by the family, land that had long ago been part of the original farm of Peter Stuyvesant. And look, here's Hunt with this great idea that was unusual. It was socially daring, perhaps, but it was a good risk. So in 1869, for $100,000, Stuyvesant financed what historians consider to be New York's very first apartment building, the Stuyvesant Apartments, or the Stuyvesant Flats, as they might have been called, at 142 East 18th Street, just a couple blocks down from Gramercy Park. The Stuyvesant, which was described, quote, as grotesque but picturesque, unquote, was a five-story building 
four of the floors containing four large apartment units each, renting between $100 to $150 a month. While the elevator had been invented by this time, the Stuyvesant didn't have one. So the lower the floor, the higher the rent. The top floor, that fifth floor, far from being a penthouse, this was divided up into four artist studios. And those are naturally the cheapest at $76 a month. Given Hunt's reputation and that Stuyvesant name, of course, people of means promptly perked up their ears at this fascinating new structure. But if you're going to drop some serious coin here, like almost $2,000 a year, you may need a little bit more convincing. Stuyvesant was prepared and quickly signed up some very notable tenants. Within a few years, the list of residents was rather swanky. By 1878, who should move in but Calvert Vox himself, the original proponent of the apartment building. It's not a surprise they were all old friends, Calvert and Richard and Rutherford Stuyvesant. In fact, all three of them were on the original board for the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the wacky tenants of the Stuyvesant apartment in a minute. But first, I wanted to give you a little tour of one of the apartments. Now, Calvert is probably out putting the very last finishing touches on Central Park by this time. So we'll be visiting with his wife, Mary Vox. So off we go into the Stuyvesant. Now, by design, it's kind of like two adjoining buildings. It even has two separate doorways, but they just share the same face when you're looking at them from the street. So we'll take the left door, enter a small lobby, nod to the concierge, and head up the stairs. These are the fancy stairs for families and guests. Behind the wall here, however, there is a smaller set of stairs and a dumbwaiter there for the servants. So we knock at the door and are greeted by a servant or probably by Mary herself. She escorts us into the room facing the street. This is the parlor. Now, poor folk have a sitting room, but people with class have a parlor. Immediately to the left of the parlor was another large room meant to be, believe it or not, a bedroom. This was one of Hunt's more shocking design elements of the Stuyvesant, taken right from the French model. Single ladies often threw open these doors, turning the room into a boudoir and entertaining, well, whoever she liked. The Voxes, most likely, had this room as a library or possibly a music room. The combination of these two rooms would be known as the master suite. The rest of the apartment funneled down a long hallway. The first room would be the dining room, completely windowless, perfectly set at all times. This would be followed by a series of smaller rooms, rooms for the children or offices. Oddly, the kitchen was all the way back at the end of the apartment. And so servants would have to lug all that food and dishes down the long hallway to the dining room. Also back there in the far back would be the servants' quarters and finally the water closet. Essentially, all the luxuries of basic comfortable living in the 19th century. There was even a tin bathtub in every unit. Now, Calvert Vox is a pretty big name to me, personally. But he isn't the most famous resident of the Stuyvesant apartment, at least not back in the day. That honor goes to Elizabeth Libby Custer, the young widow of Calvary Commander George Custer. Custer, as we know, perished at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876, and his young wife, still in mourning, moved into the Stuyvesant Apartments and lived on the first floor, and from here basically became a one-woman public relations guru for her husband's legacy. So determined at this through her whole life that historians credit her for refurbishing and most likely enhancing George Custer's reputation in the public imagination at the time. And she could be a little intense, shall we say. 
For instance, when a statue at West Point was erected in her husband's honor, she thought it looked too old in the depiction of her husband and demanded that it be torn down, which it was. She claimed that she, quote, literally cried it off the pedestal. But another writer slightly responded to that by saying, quote, the tears had to be applied in the right places and persistently, unquote. Libby Custer was joined at the Stuyvesant Apartments by her sister-in-law, Maggie Custer Calhoun, who later reached great acclaim as a traveling elocutionist, crossing the country delivering dramatic monologues that she exhaustively practiced here at the Stuyvesant. Mrs. Custer and Ms. Calhoun were home at the Stuyvesant on the morning of September 7th, 1884, when the building caught fire, apparently from a discarded match thrown down the air shaft and landing out back Ms. Custer's very own apartment. Many families here fled to the roof, led by fellow resident Joseph B. Gilder of the National Academy of Design, a man who had been the lead in raising funds for the installation of the Statue of Liberty. The Custer ladies, however, they escaped out the front door. When they returned back home, though, they discovered that a thief had taken the opportunity to risk the inferno and managed to steal several possessions relating to General Custer, which is beyond rude. Several prominent editors made their home here at the Stuyvesant, including George Palmer Putnam, one of the building's very first residents. Putnam published the books of his friends Washington Irving and Edgar Allan Poe and is said to be the first publisher to pay royalties to its authors. His young daughter Mary, who grew up running around the hallways of the Stuyvesant, grew up to become the first woman certified by the American Academy of Medicine. Putnam's neighbor was the noted publisher and journalist William Conant Church, who's better known to the world these days as being the founder and president of the National Rifle Association back in 1871. Apartments like the Stuyvesant could be havens for single women. In fact, the rise of the apartment in the late 19th century parallels the rise of early feminist figures, giving them socially acceptable homes where they could break the bonds of social traditions as they liked. Elizabeth Jordan, a pioneering journalist and one of the first editors of Harper Bazaar magazine, she lived here at the Stuyvesant around the turn of the century. Elizabeth never married, although one notable suitor asked for her hand, writer Henry James. Quote, the story runs that when Henry James proposed marriage to Elizabeth Jordan, he wrote a letter couched and so involved and complicated a style that she could not possibly understand it. She answered it in a note so illegible that he could not possibly read it, unquote. Although Elizabeth never wed, she did know how to throw a party, quote, playing Chopin by candlelight for her guests and serving them choice suppers, salted with her own spirited conversation. Now, I could rattle on here about the many eccentrics who lived at Stuyvesant over the decades, but I'll stop with the great Worthington Whitridge. Worthington, everyone who lives here has, like, amazing names, don't they? Worthington was one of the first established artists to rent here and wore his residency of, quote, the only apartment house in the city to the badge of honor. By the time he settled here, he had traveled throughout the United States for years, painting breathtaking landscapes. But to me, Worthington is best known for being a painter's model. When he was 30 years old, he stood as a model for the painter Emanuel Lutz, standing in for George Washington, as Lutz created the painting Washington Crossing the Delaware, one of the great classic American paintings. So think of Worthington Whitridge next time you see it. The combination of bold personalities and solid, acceptable families proved the Stuyvesant Flats a success, and very soon, other apartment complexes sprouted up. Richard Morris Hunt designed another one called the Stevens House the following year at 27th Street and 5th Avenue. By the mid-1870s, 
there were enough apartment houses for the city's building inspectors to create a new category called, of course, the French flat. These apartment structures steadily became more ambitious, much larger, filling whole city blocks. The edges of Central Park became a magnet for these gigantic apartment structures, due, of course, to the stunning views that were offered. By this time, the social structure of the apartment became more complex with the introduction of the cooperative apartment, or the co-op, where tenants pooled money together to pay for shared resources, including housekeeping and kitchens. Now, if by this time you're sick of my voice and you want to hear a little bit of Tom's voice, I'd actually like to point out to an older podcast we did on the Chelsea Hotel, because that sort of picks up where I'm leaving off right here with the rest of the history of New York apartment and hotel living. The Stuyvesant began to look a little bit like an antiquated dinosaur by the 1930s, when new building techniques allowed apartment buildings to stand dozens of stories taller with greater and more sophisticated amenities. I can think of no better analogy for the Stuyvesant's final years here than its use as a film set used in a pivotal scene of the 1947 film noir Kiss of Death starring Richard Widmark, who actually got an Oscar nomination, I think, for that, for playing a role as a psychopathic killer who pushes an old woman in a wheelchair down the stairwell of the Stuyvesant. The very stairs that, of course, once been so revolutionary less than 80 years before. The building was eventually demolished 10 years later in 1957, but with the proud distinction of never, ever having a vacancy in almost 90 years of luxury living. Among the very last residents, in fact, of the building included a man named Patterson McNutt. Did I not say this about the names of the residents of Stuyvesant? Patterson McNutt, who was the screenwriter of films by Shirley Temple and Jimmy Stewart. So the building was knocked down in 1957. You'll find other apartment buildings on that block today, of course. But none of the replacements, of course, have the elegance or the fame of the Stuyvesant. And since I'm in a haunted ghost stories mood, I should mention one final story that the Stuyvesant was famously haunted at the time by a Frenchman. A Frenchman who could be seen on the roof. And according to the New York Times in the article about the demolition, the Frenchman would communicate by, quote, tapping out messages on a Ouija board. His famous message in French, roughly translated as, Woe to those who have betrayed the arts. Please check out the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. I have spectacular photographs of the Stuyvesant apartment, and I'll run a couple photographs of some of those tenants as well. You can find us on Facebook, and you can also find us on Twitter. Just our handle is BoweryBoys. I'm actually becoming a lot more active on Twitter the past few weeks, so posting original content, and there's a great community on there as well, and look forward to exploring that even further. So Tom will be back for the holiday show next month. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.